Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, it said Hollywood and history on the top of this podcast that you've downloaded. Thank you very much for that. I mean, I can't say no thank you because you wouldn't hear this, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. And while, yes, that's absolutely what we're talking about, here's the really exciting news that Hollywood and history is the name of my new book that at time of recording you can go out and pre-order right now you can go to amazon or wherever you can pre-order it you'll be able to get it soon its full title is hollywood and histories what the movies get wrong from ancient greeks to vietnam so yeah that's too long to fit in a podcast but usually the idea so it, it absolutely spans a whole era and boy has this book been on quite a journey Allow me to explain, and a shout-out to another podcaster out there. This is one of these people, with Greg, for example, the editor. Oh my God, it's a dream. He and I very rarely meet. We maybe catch up physically twice a year. That would be a good year. Obviously, because of COVID, there was a whole year I never even saw a smiling face, basically. And we didn't grow up together. We didn't even grow up in the same part of Britain. But we started years and years ago, probably eight years ago, we just happened to catch each other's attention on Twitter, started talking, things evolved from there, and then we ended up doing a podcast together. Nowadays, in the modern 21st century, there are some people who we get to know by social media. Social media friends, obviously Greg and I have gone beyond that because we've met up multiple times. But there's people that you are friendly with that you've never actually met on social media. And an example of that is John Bleasdale, who is a doctor, as in DR, Dr. John T on Twitter. And he is a professor. He actually lectures on film history. He is a journalist. He reviews and critiques various movies that come out. You know, he'll attend things like TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. That's the name that it's easier to just say TIFF. And so I, I think he had some really interesting takes. Obviously, it's very intelligent, very knowledgeable takes on history. The problem with a lot of people online is like, hey, the, the top 10 best ever films done by a 20-year-old on YouTube who has never seen anything prior to, let's say, Star Wars 1977. It's all like you 
you do know that there were some good films of the 1960s, right? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, for example. No, never heard of that. Oh, okay, well, let me show you a list of films you really should start looking at before you start saying that, I don't know, The Matrix is one of the top 10 greatest films of all time. I love The Matrix, but it isn't in the top 10 of all time. Anyway, so yeah, with John by comparison, he obviously knows what he's talking about. He pulls from all kinds of areas of film history, and he has a brilliant podcast called Writers on Film. And what it is, it's a podcast dedicated to people who write about movies. So in other words, it's what he does, and he knows people who do it. And he's had some amazing people on it, you know, actual film directors, actors, etc., screenwriters, but also people who've written books who are just real experts in that particular area. I don't always agree with what's being said, but it's opened my eyes to some films that I am unaware of, and it's just a really interesting intellectual thing. Right, so that's going on, and in the meantime, I'm doing all my history stuff. And then something happened in my head. I've been doing this podcast, or a variation of it with the sister podcast, Neon, since 2018, so it's been a few years, way before I knew John Bleasdale. And so, clearly in the back of my brain, something was happening, because in November of 2021, I just got up. Now, for the record, when it comes to all my other books that I've written, I absolutely hate it when people say, you know, come on to my course and I'll show you how to write a book. No. That's how you write a book. Different people write in different ways. I see it in my own home. My wife is a writer, and she has a completely different way of doing it to me. I find her system incredibly overly complicated, and it would drive me insane if I did it. And believe me, the feeling's mutual with the way I write and her position, okay? So, there isn't a right or wrong way to write a book. But... Generally, with me, I think about the topic, I then start preparing and planning. Obviously, you've got to do something like that if it's non-fiction, for example. People don't like it when you make things up in a history book. So, there is a certain element of prep work, but also there's a lot of work for me personally I do as I go along. And I slowly chip away at it, like every day I'm going to do a thousand words, two thousand words, something like that. I will... I will reduce this huge manuscript into little chunks as I sort of move along, and I'm always moving forwards. That's the way it normally happens. Not for Hollywood and history. Absolutely not. I woke up one morning, and it was just in there, in my head. It was like this book was trying to break out of my brain. And in 11 days... I did the first 80,000-word manuscript, the first draft of this. 80,000 words in 11 days. I was cranking this thing out. There were times when I was waking up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and my brain was basically saying, come on, Jem, you've had enough sleep, get on and start writing. And it was weird. This book felt like it was writing itself. I've never had that experience before, and this thing just poured out of me. So obviously nobody had asked for this book, including me, and I then went to my usual publisher, Amberly, who's been so good at supporting me over the years, and I went to them and I said, look, you haven't asked for this, but I think this is the most commercial book I've ever written because there's a lot of people out there who like movies, there's a lot of people out there who like general history, and and this is sort of like whipping through historical eras. I think this is a really commercial 
thing. And basically, we went backwards and forwards on this multiple times, but in the end it was no. It's like, what do you mean no? I understand if I'd done the plumbing of medieval London. Not exactly a page turner. It is an important piece of history and archaeology for medieval London, an important bit of sociology. Not exactly going to be something that's going to be flying off the shelves, but something where it's like, hey guys, you know all those history movies, you know all those war films you've seen? Did they actually get it right? There's absolutely a market for that. I hope as I'm explaining this, you're sitting there going, yeah, I'd, I'd read that. And so I was gobsmacked. And the reason why I went backwards and forwards is I simply didn't accept their refusal first time around. I went, come on, guys, look at it this way. Look at it that way. Look, look at how much these sort of books tend to go for. But they just, it just didn't tick their box. So I was now left with a manuscript and nobody to publish it. So I went to John and obviously he knows people in, in movies. And it was a case of, well, maybe I look at this the other way around say well how about getting a publisher that specializes in film books because this is all about films there is close to 200 movies mentioned and not necessarily reviewed some of them are just mentioned in passing but there are about 200 films in this book so it's very film heavy isn't it and he said oh that's great and he helped me and indeed on one of his podcasts he had somebody who came on who said we're looking for new books if anybody's interested give me a a call. His name's Pat and he's in America. And basically between John and his connections and Pat and his connections, interestingly, Pat went, ah, I can't publish this book. It's, it's just, it doesn't quite fit what we're doing at the moment, blah, blah, blah. But here are the names of some other people I know. So, you know, I get passed on. And, and the great thing about, and huge shout out to both John and Pat, there's nothing in it for them. You know, they're, they're not getting a split of the profits or anything like that. They were helping a stranger, helping just a guy online. I guess they liked my honesty and they were willing to fight my case. And so particularly in regards to Pat, while he himself did not publish me, he did eventually get me in touch with the publishers that did finally accept it. But now, for the first time ever, this book, I mean, the, my other books are available worldwide. Indeed, one of my books, The British Empire and 100 Facts, was published by Amberley in the UK, and it ended up being picked up by a different publisher for the Indian market. So it's been published in India as well, although any of my books, you can go onto your version of Amazon or Goodreads or whatever, and you can find any of my published books there. Great, go for it. Some of my self-published books, principally my, my novels, my historical dramas, they are self-published through the Amazon function, so you can only buy them on Amazon. But indeed, it's, it amuses me every now and then when I get royalties for these things, something like 75p, you know, really raking in the money. It's like, oh, somebody bought a copy in Australia. Thank you very much. So anyway, now I'm dealing with an American publisher. And they, well, before I even sent it to Amberley, I sent it to my usual copy editor. This woman has dealt with all of my books and she turned my fever dream into something more manageable. What was sent to Amberley versus what I finished after those 11 days was quite a different beast. I actually had a couple of people look through it, including my wife, who basically said, yeah, you know, this seems to be in the wrong place. You're just jumping into each era. You need a couple of paragraphs for people who aren't aware about what the medieval era is explain what that is, what do you define as the ancient era, etc. So in other words, have a couple of paragraphs of history, historical context before you start jumping into various films. All good stuff, all good 
feedback. Thank you very much for that. Then I'm with the Americans, and then the Americans have a different layer. I am a white guy in Britain, and the associate publisher said to me, Jim, if you're doing history, and this is being published in America, you've got to do one on the civil rights movement. Now, that was never my plan, and as a white guy from Britain, I don't think I'm qualified to write about it. So I was very careful with that particular chapter. The other thing is, most of it's quite light-hearted. And the civil rights movement, there's nothing that's light-hearted about that at all. And indeed, in that chapter, I actually go on to say that, unlike almost any other genre we're talking about, like the Westerns, like the medieval ones, like the ancient ones, or the World War movies, there is a definable earnestness to any of these kind of civil rights movies. It could be Selma, it could be Judas and the Black Messiah, it could be One Night in Miami, it could be Detroit, the, the list goes on and on. Almost none of these films have a sense of fun about them. The closest one to a comedy is Black Klansman, Spike Lee film, which is far more easily watchable. It, it's more of a Saturday night movie than something like Detroit, for example. But even that one obviously has some very hard edges to it and real sense of uncomfortableness to it. So I'm telling you right now, which genre has the most historically accurate films? The answer is civil rights movies or, you know, black cinema about the 20th century, if you want to call it that. So I'm glad I did it. But sometimes people tend to think the West has this overall view of things. So, for example, in the civil rights one, I had to point out that segregation is a uniquely American thing. It's not something that happened in mainland Western Europe, for example. But I then felt obliged to go on to say, but that's not to say that France and Britain and Spain and Germany are racist, but they have a different type of racism. So suddenly I'm talking about some very heavy, serious subjects, which I'm glad I put into it. So whenever you see a book, it wasn't like the writer wrote it, then it gets put into electronic files and then they press print and then it gets turned into a book. It is remarkable how many different people touch a manuscript before it even gets turned into a book, even if it's got the name like J.K. Rowling or Stephen King on the front. Indeed, one of the problems is if you do become one of the big mega names. I think J.K. Rowling's a good example of this. By the time you get to things like Order of the Phoenix, you know, which is a thousand page long children's book, it's like children generally don't read thousand-page books, and I, I love the Harry Potter books. I think they are amazing, monumental, they are instant modern classics, but if I'm going to criticise them, some of the books, Order of the Phoenix, Goblet of Fire, things like that, you know, there are 150 pages before they even get to Hogwarts, and it's like, get on with it. You, you find out the scores in the Quidditch World Cup, and it's like, this isn't adding anything to the story or characterization. this is just whimsical filler. Which, if you weren't that powerful, if you weren't selling books by the truckload, quite literally, an editor would have said, get rid of this. This adds nothing. Let's turn this thousand-page book into a 700-page book, and it's still too long for a kid to read. But let's trim this down. So yes, you get associate publishers, you get editors, copy editors. This book has been looked at by more people than any of my other books. Putting aside the casual readership, like, you know, getting friends and family to read it and see, you know, does it make sense? But looking at my original editor, plus the ones in the publisher, there are at least five or six people that have, and it could well be more than that, who have read it, 
ask me to amend things, etc. before it ever gets turned into a book. This book is the most highly polished book ever. The weird thing is, I wrote it in November of 2021. And because Ambly turned it down, most of 2022 was spent trying to find somebody to say yes. And because you're not on the list of what they're planning to publish, it's very, very hard to get in. And the other thing I was finding with some of these other publishers, like, look, here's a list of all my other published works. You know, I am already published. The manuscript's already here. You can judge its quality. And I was being turned down by multiple people. It's like, what? What am I missing? This is clearly commercial. And then eventually, when it does did get to the American publisher, one of the bits of feedback was, this is a really commercial idea. And I sat there reading the email like, yeah, I know. Right? That, if you like, is the background of how this book finally got created. And it's now coming out in the year 2023. So this book is two years in the making. You know, at least half a dozen people were involved. Yeah, millions of dollars were spent. No, millions of dollars were not spent on it. But I am super proud of this. This, to me, feels like the mo I mean, there are other books I've been super, super proud of. For example, The Sultans. You know, I was one of the few people to write an entire history of the Ottoman Empire in English and also not biased to either Eastern-looking or Western-looking. Incredibly proud of that book. My first novel, A Silent Crossroads, which I did a podcast about earlier this year. Again, incredibly proud that I was at the end like, my God, I can write a novel. I can't just write history books. So, I mean, there are lots of projects that I've worked on that I'm extremely proud of. But this one feels like it's the most gem book I've written. Yeah, fine. There are some chapters in there that I was told to write and weren't necessarily my natural habitat, shall we say. But it's got my sense of humor in there. There are elements of sarcasm. And it was interesting with the editor, sometimes... There's this great thing with the editor because they put in notes. And as the author, you have the right to ignore them or not. You're an idiot if you completely ignore them because they're trying to make it better. But there are some times when they have a view and I have a different view. Or they just put in, I've, I've edited this around so it just flows better, but this was a lot of fun or something like that. And so you start going backwards and forwards with them. Even though I've never spoken to this editor, you get a feeling for their personality. And they certainly know your personality. And it's fun. You end up writing a book multiple times. It's not just one and done. Even if it's the seventh draft you submit, other people get involved. And again, the manuscript changes. I guess I need to do a shout out to that publisher, Roman and Littlefield Publishers in America. Thank you very much for saying yes when a number of organizations said no. That really means a lot to me. It's obviously opened up a whole new conversation with a new organization. Obviously, if this sells well, I'll be working with them again on a project. An easy one to do as I've done Hollywood and history. I, it'd be very easy to do TV and history as well. So let's get into the book itself. And what I would say is if you like this podcast, obviously, please click subscribe. Please give us a review, all that usual stuff. Let me know what you think. I'm at Jim Daduccio on Twitter. What I would say is that I have been sprinkling in bits of this book, unsurprisingly, as we've been going through the last year, because I'd already done the research. It was easy enough to stick stuff in. And indeed, there are some... I mean, this is a th the weird thing. When I was writing some of it, I was pulling from information that I'd researched for this podcast. So there's kind of this weird circular thing going on here. So there we go. So I would really say this is about as hard a sell as I'm going to give you guys. If you like this podcast, basically this book has been written for you and you will enjoy it. Now, it is available currently only in hardback, so I know that's a little bit more expensive, but hey, guys got to eat and also... 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So it's going across the international waters and so on and so forth. It's not going to be something I'm going to make by fortune on. I'm not going to be getting a luxury yacht out of this. But you know what? Like a lot of writers, I'm just glad it's going to be seen. And, you know, time of recording, I've got no idea if this sells one copy, 100 copies, 1,000 copies, 10,000 copies. Is this finally, after sort of 10 years of writing books, is this finally the one that gets the attention and suddenly elevates me? You know, America is a much bigger market than the UK. I don't know. Or maybe it just quietly goes out, does all right. Anywho. So then they're saying, you know, can we get endorsements and so I, I reached out to two people who again only through social media I know a little bit although I did actually help one of them at a presentation once Greg Jenner who is a who was kind of came to attention writing for Horrible Histories the brilliant children's historical TV show on BBC and he's now writing his own sort of general books and we sort of gone backwards and forwards a little bit he's also does the podcast you're dead to me which is much bigger than this one and yeah he's an all-round good guy he's quite funny he is funny uh, i don't let's damn him with faint praise or anything like that but he doesn't was we physically met once and he had other things to worry about then but you know he's gone backwards and forwards and he even did try and help me go in the general direction of when i actually reached out to, to, to both greg and the other person i'm going to mention at the same time as john and say uh, you know any ideas can you help me and so with Greg, I, I went to him going, any chance you're willing to have a look at this? And he said, look, I'm a bit busy at the moment, but yes, I'd love to. And that's just a classy thing. He owes me nothing and he was willing to help out. So thank you very much then. And the same goes for Dominic Sandbrook. Now, he's one of the co-hosts of the biggest 
history podcast in the world, The Rest is History, with Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, the actual writer. And Tom Holland, I've actually done a podcast on with Neon. Sadly, it didn't get the same numbers as The Rest is History, but anyway. And he's indeed mentioned in the book, because I pull from this talk that I did with Tom Holland, and it's absolutely relevant to the book. But anyway, with Dominic Sandbrook, I reached out to him, and he said, well, I'm really busy till May. But yes, please do send it over to me. So look, there are... I think one of the important things in life is, if you don't ask, you don't get. If you just assume someone's going to say no, you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, there's a way to ask nicely, and on both occasions I did ask very nicely, and also, because you're just asking somebody for a favour, you also have to accept that they have the right to say no, and you shouldn't hold a grudge. How dare you not do me a favour when there's nothing in it for you and you don't really know me? It's like, well, no, they don't owe you a thing. But... If somebody like that does sort of say, yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you a bit of support, it just tells you that they're a, a, an all-round good person. So there we go. A little shout-out for some podcasts that don't need any shouting out because <laughs> that's so much bigger than mine. Anywho, all of this is going on around it, and I now want to get into some of the points of the book. So as I said, each chapter is a different era. So the first one, and, and each chapter's got a slightly amusing title to it, so it's like, it's all Greek to me to do with the ancient era. One of the bits of feedback goes, well, not everything you mention in the chapter is Greek. It's sort of like, okay, but it is a joke. Let people read the chapter, and I don't think they'll be feeling that they've somehow been shortchanged by the end of the chapter. So you can look at ancient movies set in the ancient world, things like Troy and Gladiator and, you know, Cleopatra, sure, from the 60s, shall we say, and indeed some of the earliest big-budget actual feature-length movies are historical epics, or indeed biblical epics as well, literally in the silent era, Cecil B. DeMille being a classic example of that. You can throw in other sort of like Hollywood greats like Ben-Hur, for example, one of the only three films that's ever won 11 Oscars, so, you know, it's a big deal, Ben-Hur. The, oh, by the way, the Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, that was a remake of a silent version of Ben-Hur, and it was subsequently remade in the 21st century, which there's a reason why you don't know that that one exists. It allowed me to talk a bit about the history that's being depicted on screen, a bit. This is not a book which goes, oh, I think you'll find in the movie about the Battle of Waterloo, the Royal Fusiliers have two buttons on their coats, and actually they should have three buttons. Nobody cares. Although that is a, you know, a fact, although I've just made up that kind of fact, you know, people do get uniforms slightly wrong and so on and so forth. That's just not important enough to, to mention it. It's the sort of thing that you'll get on a web page where everybody is like a, a historical reenactor of the Napoleonic era. But that doesn't change the overall view of the movie. As I said, it allows me to talk about how did this film even exist? As I said, it goes from the ancient Greeks to Vietnam, and obviously I'm going to talk about Apocalypse Now in that one, and just the story about the making of Apocalypse Now is so amazing that you've got, you've actually got a, a brilliant documentary about the making of this movie, directed by Francis Ford Coppola's wife. She's also there watching her husband have a nervous and financial breakdown. So, yeah, that's definitely something to throw in. But also at the same time, what does, seeing it's based on the Heart of Darkness, a book that came out in the 19th century and has got literally nothing to do with Vietnam, is it even meant to be about Vietnam? But I make some valid points there. So it is interesting. As, as I say in the introduction, and I think this is something that is worth sharing with you now, there are basically three ways 
that films get the history wrong. And they have different levels of concern. So the examples that I give is there is the movie 300, which I'm sure you're aware of. And Greg uses bits of that film quite a lot because it's very quotable. This is Sparta! Now, for the record, the Battle of Thermopylae the Battle of the Hot Gates between the allied Greek nations and the Persian Empire in 480 BC is a real event, and indeed there was the legendary King Leonidas of Sparta there with his small cohort of Spartans that actually numbered 298 because two people were away at the end because of eye infections. That's a different story. Well, one of them came back even though they were totally blind. It's a whole thing. Anyway, the point is... It's a real event. But let's look at the movie, okay? Now, first of all, the movie is hyper-stylized. There's endless slow-mo. There are monsters in it. These are clues that this might not be 100% accurate in terms of its history. But what was that movie inspired by? Well, it's actually inspired by Frank Miller's comic of the events of 300. So this isn't inspired by Herodotus, the near contemporary who wrote down the stories of the, the Battle of Thermopylae, it's influenced by a comic. And what was that comic influenced by? Well, Frank Miller was influenced by a 1960s film called The 300 Spartans, which as a kid I saw. And that was a very sort of sword and sandals, Hollywood epic interpretation of the actual history. So there's already a bunch of filters there between what is being made the sources it's pulling from, and the actual events. And, you know, as I say, visually, there are loads of clues to say, if you think that this is 100% historically accurate, you're an idiot. And it was actually that film that I was showing, and then afterwards there was a Q&A with me and Tom Holland in front of an audience. And it was a lot of fun. And one of the things he said is, he was having a bit of fun. He goes, oh, this is the most historically accurate film ever. You know, almost with his tongue firmly in his cheek there. But the point he was making is, as soon as you try and make something that's 100% historically accurate, if it's, if we're talking about hundreds of years ago, you are doomed to failure. We don't know. Anytime you see a scene between two people behind closed doors, people talked. Of course they talked. You know, absolutely, Henry VIII had private conversations with Anne Boleyn. But because they were behind closed doors, they weren't written down by anybody. So this is, the moment that door shuts, everything has to be conjecture. Now, maybe it's really realistic conjecture, or maybe it's just zhuzhed up for the audience to see something, I don't know, raunchy or dramatic or angsty or whatever. So yeah, if you've got a movie like 300, or let's pick another one, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they wear their historical inaccuracy on their sleeve. You know you should be taking this with a bucket of salt, okay? The other thing is that, let's, let's stick with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there is a big difference between a film that's historically accurate and a good film. There are lots of great movies that are really entertaining, that aren't in any way historically accurate, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm, I'm not a spoil sport here. I'm more than happy to say, look, I love this movie, but they've got pretty much everything wrong in it. So number one, it's historically inaccurate, and everybody knows it's historically inaccurate. Right, moving on. 
The second, and I'm going to say far more problematic type of historical inaccuracy, is one of my favourite films to, to go on about, and yes, it's definitely in the book, is Braveheart. Now, it was actually Greg who pointed out to me, we talked a lot about Braveheart in the past when there was a different format to this podcast, and he said because it came out before the internet was really a thing, before social media was really a thing, it got away with it. If Braveheart was launched today, there would be so many people nitpicking this thing that everyone would realise how historically inaccurate it was. And yet when it came out, basically you get these few amount of historical authors and historians trying to say, no, 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 it looks wrong, the events are wrong, it's, it's wrong. But, you know, it ends up winning a bunch of Oscars. It wouldn't have won a bunch of Oscars today because people would be going, you're playing so fast and loose with history. And also Mel Gibson's kind of cancelled now anyway, but that's a whole other story. But again, is Braveheart a rootin' tootin' incredibly exciting action movie? Absolutely. The bad guys are bad and the good guys are so good. But as we all know, history doesn't work that way. Indeed, I point out in the movie itself, it, it breaks its own logic. In the first battle scene, the two groups of Irish mercenaries crash into each other. And then actually it turns out that the English Irish mercenaries, they're going to switch sides because they're with their Celtic brothers, the Scots. Ha ha ha. So switching sides is good. But then in the last battle scene, when some of the Scottish nobles desert the battlefield, leaving William Wallace to his doom to the English, this is horrible and underhanded. They change sides because of money. And that's, oh, how despicable. It's like, it's the same tactic. Either it's legitimate or it's not legitimate. It can't be legitimate in certain circumstances. It makes no sense. But to give you, again, I go into a lot more detail about this, but I'll give you the best bit of example about how historically inaccurate Braveheart is. In that first famous battle scene, as I mentioned, where you get this great cavalry charge by the English. It's called the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And there's no bridge in it. And the bridge is key because the English had to break formations to slowly go across this very narrow bridge. So the Scots attacked when some of the English forces were over the bridge. You know, there weren't enough of them to beat the Scots. And also they were out of formation. And also there were all these guys still trying to travel over the bridge. And the main body of the army was on the other side of the water. It was a brilliant ambush. It was a great bit of strategy. And that's not what you see in the cinema at all. It's rude shoving in the middle of a field and who wants it more and freedom. But the thing is with Braveheart is it flashes up dates. It flashes up locations. We've got really good actors in it. You say what you want about Mel Gibson. He's a good actor. And, you know, as he sort of walks around using sort of Shakespearean language, it all feels kind of real unless you know any of the history and realize this is as made up as... 300. In fact, 300 does a better job of getting the actual historical events in the right order and the right way than Braveheart does. But just looking at them on screen, you would think that, oh, they've done their homework. Why would they flash up dates? And even some of the dates are wrong. The locations are wrong as well. It's just a mess. But it's meant to be there to entertain. But they've added this kind of veneer of what looks like credibility. And that ain't true. Then there's the third one, which is perhaps even more insidious. And the example I give on that one is the Chinese movie Hero, a wuxia film starring Jet Li. Came out in the early 2000s. 
to rave reviews. It was even nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. It is one of the most beautiful films you will ever see. I encourage you to at least see some screenshots or some trailers of it. It is gorgeous, and it's based on some real history. The problem with it is this. It's made by the Chinese film industry, which is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, which means they have to follow suit with what the government wants. And what I found amazing when this film first came out, when I watched it in the, in the cinema, everyone was raving about it. I was sitting there going, this is clearly propaganda, but everybody was so dazzled by the visuals, and they are sumptuous, and the wuxia martial arts is amazing, it's beautiful choreography, amazing. This is a feast for your eyes, okay? But it leaves definitely a bad taste in your mouth, because the basic story is a real story about an assassin who tried to assassinate the first Chinese emperor. This is around about sort of 150 BC, give, give or take. And this genuinely happened. This guy came as a musician and using, and the term is weaponized loot. And presumably there's just like an iron bar in the loot or something. It's a much heavier loot than it could possibly be. Failed to assassinate the emperor. That's a true story. And this has been way blown out and extrapolated from there. But the point is this. At the end, when Jet Li, who is the hero, unnamed hero, by the way, it wasn't just Tenet that came up with that idea first, just give no name to the protagonist. Basically, he he can kill the Emperor, but the Emperor talks to him about how China needs a strong, powerful leader who must unite all these disparate parts of China together, and that basically this is a metaphor for the Communist Party and why you all need to sit down, shut up, and do what we say, which is not particularly pleasant to, to a Western viewer. But it took years for some of these, uh, you know, particularly I remember The Guardian, which is, you know, uh, left-leaning newspaper, which certainly isn't sort of like pro-dictatorship or, or anything like that, but they gave it a glowing review. But years later, they sort of went back to it and went, uh, hang on. And it's like, well, guys, I spotted it first. So, so yeah, so sometimes there are these propaganda pieces. And an example, going back to Vietnam again, is you get something like the Green Berets in the late 1960s, John Wayne. This is one of the first films about the Vietnam War. It is American propaganda. Now, the government didn't tell John Wayne to make the film. That's, if you like, the difference of it. But because it was so positive about American forces in Vietnam and the Vietnamese communists were the baddiest bad guys ever, that he was given basically free run of the US military. All of the equipment in it is incredibly accurate because it was about to be shipped over to Vietnam to fight in the war. I mean, he's literally filming during the war. And indeed, the village, the fake Viet Cong village that they created in Georgia, the state in America, it was used after they finished. They didn't tear it down. They kept using it for training for US forces that were about to go into Vietnam. So this film is part of the Vietnam War. And nowadays, it is savaged by its incredibly simplistic view of the Vietnam War and its lack of critical analysis. But as I say in the book, the, the thing is, America and the West has turned their back on those kinds of overtly jingoistic movies. Nowadays, if you do get a war film like 1917 or Dunkirk or Saving Private Ryan or whatever, they may well show the bravery of soldiers, but they'll absolutely show the horrors of war. And sometimes they'll show the sort of like the insanity of the decisions of any of these things. You know, the under no illusion, war is bad by the end of these movies. But the rest of the world is still making films like The Green Beret. Look at Russian films about its past, or Iranian films, or Chinese films. You know, they are the goodiest good guys, and the invaders are always these sort of like evil foreigners. It's, you know, it's, it's just the same level of 
black and white Mickey Mouse kind of analogies and moralities of the Green Berets that is still being used in the rest of the world and is a sign that actually Hollywood is more mature than sometimes we give it credit for. So there you go. I've gone on and on about this. You can tell I could keep going on and on about this. 12 chapters. It covers, I don't know, about 3,000 years worth of history, 200 films. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll get angry. I'm incredibly proud of this book and I would thoroughly recommend that you have a read. I would love to get your thoughts. This is actually an important one where if you get it and if you like it, review it on something like Amazon or wherever. This is absolutely something that needs to get some reviews, to get sort of some love out there. So please spread the word. And as always, another podcast coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.